For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, well, why are we studying this topic? Well, it's, you don't have to look too far to see that we are really in the midst of a mental health crisis. Experts are basically agreed on that. We're heading that direction. Major depressive episodes. We can see this chart here from um, Gene Twangy's book, iGen. Um, you can see uh, major depressive episodes from 12 to 17-year-olds up between 50 and 100% over a five-year period, according to this graph, 2011 through 2015. Suicidal ideation and self-harm, according to a survey of 400,000 college students. The AHCA, we see a 43% increase in uh, seriously considering suicide and a 30% increase in intentional self-harm. And again, that's over a five-year period, 2011 to 2016. Same survey, 400,000 college students. Anxiety up by more than 20% in a three-year period. Depression up by more than 20% in a three-year period. Um, And, you know, I... I don't have to tell you guys this. I'm sure that you've seen it yourself or you even experienced this. So I guess part of my point here is if you are experiencing this, you're not alone. There's something happening to a lot of people. And we want to explore this topic over the next couple of weeks. Part of what um, we've been doing a lot of research for this series. And um, one thing that's been pretty interesting to me is there is a whole branch of scientific study in the area of happiness. Did you know there are happiness scientists? that study human happiness and human well-being. And there's a whole, whole field called the science of well-being. You know, back 20, 30 years ago, it was just a bunch of self-help books and anecdotal this and that. And I tried, you know, green tea and it worked for me. And, um, but now they've actually, you know, scientific, repeatable studies of what behaviors make for happiness and what don't. And what they found is a lot of times where our mind says, I should do this, but not only is it make, not making us happier, but it's actually making us less happy. And so there's some counterintuitive truths that we found here. But one thing that's been pretty interesting, this book by Sonia Lyubomirsky, Russian name, um, she studied factors influencing chronic happiness levels. She's written a couple books on this. What she's found is this, is that about half of your happiness levels, that is genetic. That's like what you were born with, Okay. So there's really not much you can do about that. You were born with who you are. Um, But notice it's only 50%. What was really surprising to me is that your happiness happiness levels are only about 10% your circumstances. So things outside your control that happen to you, that's only about 10%. There's a 40% that is your thoughts, your actions that you do have control over. And in this three-week series that we're going to do, we really, we're not going to focus too much on the 60%, the part that's outside of our control, but we are going to take a look at the 40%, the part that you can control. This is the part that's not about, you know, what medication you're taking for anxiety or depression or whatever, but these are specific actions that you can take to increase your happiness levels, to reduce your anxiety and your depression levels. Um, Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz. Research psychiatrist, UCLA School of Medicine, his book, You Are Not Your Brain. Here's what this says. UCLA researchers asked people with OCD to participate in a research study where they either took medication or learned our four-step approach to dealing with the intrusive negative messages they were bombarded with on a daily basis. Um, Their their four-step approach is basically cognitive behavioral therapy. 
learning to, you know, right thinking, right actions, things like that. The team scanned people's brains before treatment and then 10 to, tweak, 10 to 12 weeks after they'd been on either medicine or uh, the therapy that he recommends here. And here's what he says. Much to our delight, they found that people who used our four-step method had the same positive changes in their brains as the people who took medications to treat their OCD. These incredible brain changes occurred because of our mind's ability to change our brains. So these are, these are scans of pre and post, and uh, you see that RCD area of the brain, you can see how it shrunk significantly based on the therapy that they were doing. This is called neuroplasticity, that our brains are not just set, but they can change over time. And, you know, in no way am I against medication or anything like that. I think it's, it's very helpful in many cases, and I'm not a doctor, and I, I'm not pretending to be one, okay? Um, but what, this is a very commonly recognized phenomenon when it comes to uh, science of the brain, neuroplasticity. And so we want to think about what are some actions we can take to increase our happiness levels. And, and one that we're just going to kind of isolate out and talk about tonight is the area of anxiety. That's our topic for tonight, anxiety. Lukianoff and Haight, the coddling of the American mind. This is a Stanford Law grad and NYU professor. In their book, they cite statistics on anxiety. And um, anxiety is rising right along. In fact, that and depression are right on the leading edge of the rising mental health crisis that I referred to earlier. They said a 2016 report by the Center for Collegiate Mental Health using data from 139 colleges found that the 2015-2016 school year half of all students reported having attended counseling for mental health concerns. The report notes that the only mental health concerns that were increasing were anxiety and depression. So this is all due to anxiety and depression, which often kind of come together. These years also saw a rise in the self-reports of anxiety as the reason for seeking help. One large survey of university counseling centers found that in 2009, only 37% of students complained about problems with anxiety roughly on par with the other two leading concerns, depression and relationships. But beginning in 2010, the percentage of students with anxiety complaints began to increase. It reached 46% in 2013. It continued climbing to 51% in 2016. It is now by far the leading problem for which college students seek treatment. Anxiety changes the brain in pervasive ways such that threats seem to jump out at the person, even in ambiguous or harmless circumstances. You know, something like coming to a meeting like this might seem pretty terrifying to a person with anxiety. And I know that because I used to have really serious problems with that, social anxiety. When I first started coming out to meetings like this, I was pretty terrified to come to a meeting like Central Teaching. And even a meeting like Home Church with 30 people um, was... was um, I felt real intense feelings of anxiety. I remember times where I was walking to a meeting from my dorm room and I got about 100 yards away from the building and I'd just turn around and, and walk back home just because I thought I can't deal with this tonight. Um, I, would, I would start to feel, you know, there were times where I'd be standing in a group and I was just like, who do I talk to? What do people think about me? Um, and uh, I basically resolved in my mind, I don't think I'm ever coming back here again. Uh, fortunately, I did keep coming back. Um, I'm embarrassed to admit this, okay? Um, I used to try to think of what can I do to avoid talking to people? And, and the reason that I started drinking coffee was because I just couldn't think of anything else to do 
where I didn't really have to talk to people. And I found I could kill like a minute, a minute and a half, pouring the coffee, putting in the cream, putting in whatever other stuff they had to put in there. Um, and I still enjoy coffee today, okay? I'm, I'm not anti-coffee either. <laughs> but the point is, when you're anxious, things that are totally harmless, like I was in no danger at all, and yet I felt so terrified that sometimes I could not even speak. I felt paralyzed with fear. Anxiety. Anxiety can be so shameful, so embarrassing, so debilitating, where you just feel like I would do anything to get rid of this. Well, Dr. Robert Leahy, I'm going to quote extensively from his book, The Worry Cure. Um, this is one of his many books. Um, he's the president of the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies. He's a clinical psychology professor at Cornell Medical School. He's author, editor of 27 books. This is about as big as it gets when it, when it comes to experts in this field. And uh, his book, The Worry Cure, is really good. Here's what he says. He starts his book this way. He says, imagine that a man who's grown up in the jungle far away from modern civilization stumbles out of the jungle one day and looks around at modern civilization. And he says, I'm so confused. I grew up in the jungle. I have so many questions. Like, how can I speak English? But also, why are you all so worried? Teach me to worry like you. So he says, if somebody asked you that, you would give him the seven rules of worry. The seven rules of highly worried people. They are, one, if something bad could happen, if you can simply imagine it, then it's your responsibility to worry about it. <laughs> Two, don't accept any uncertainty. You need to know for sure. Third, treat all of your negative thoughts as if they're really true. Because why would you think them if they weren't true? Fourth, anything bad that could happen is a reflection of who you are as a person. Failure is unacceptable. Get rid of any negative feelings immediately. And seventh, treat everything like an emergency. <laughs> and he says, and then you, don't, you must not forget to add the eighth wor worry rule on top of all this, which is this. Oh yeah, all this worrying is going to drive you crazy, give you a heart attack, and ruin your life completely. You've got to stop worrying completely or you go crazy and die. <laughs> Poor jungle guy. And that sets up what he calls his dirty dozen. These are really bad ways, really ineffective ways that we deal with worry that we think are going to help us. And I'm not going to give you all 12 of these, but I want to give you the majority of them just to kind of give you a sampling of what he's talking about here. And partly just because I really enjoyed this chapter and found myself relating to a lot of these. He says, do these comments sound familiar? Try to be more positive. You have nothing to worry about. Everything will turn out Okay. You need to believe in yourself. I believe in you. Try to get your mind off of it. Just stop worrying. Most worriers have heard this advice from well-meaning friends or even well-meaning therapists. You might, if you're really lucky, feel better for about 10 minutes. That's one of his points is that worry actually makes you feel better for a very brief time. It reduces your anxiety temporarily, but then it comes right back to where you were before and then you're even more hooked on worrying. Your worries persist because of the ways you try to get rid of them. You use techniques that make things worse. It's like an alcoholic trying to get rid of his alcoholism by having another drink. It'll take his mind off the problem for an hour, but the problem is still there and worse than before. And so what are his dirty dozen? Number one, you seek reassurance. You seek reassurance from other people to calm your worries. Okay, imagine this scenario. A girl says to the guy, 
honey, do these pants make my butt look big? Okay, guys, you've already lost <laughs> if this question is being asked of you. The question is, how bad will you lose? The correct answer is, no, of course not. The problem is, that's not going to help. Any reassurance, she can doubt what you're saying. Um, she can wonder if you just don't have the heart to tell her what you really think. And so she's going to seek more reassurance. The guy says, doctor, should I be worried about this spot on my skin? And the doctor runs his test and he says, no, there's nothing to worry about here. But you might go away feeling temporarily reassured. But then you start wondering, maybe I should get a second opinion. Maybe it's progressed in the months since he ran those tests. Maybe there was an error. Don't doctors make mistakes? And so the worrier that's seeking reassurance to eradicate all of his anxiety simply is, is going down a false path. The problem is you can always doubt the reassurance later, and that just drives you to seek for more assurance. Two, you try to stop your thoughts. Just stop worrying. Just grab that thought and stop it. <laughs> Some will even say, put a rubber band on your wrist, and if you have a worrying thought, snap yourself with the rubber band. Okay, that might work for like Pavlov's dogs. <laughs> but we are complex creatures, personal beings. There was a famous experiment in 1989 called the White Bear Experiment where uh, David Wagner, psychologist David Wagner, it wasn't necessarily the Coca-Cola bear, but <laughs> that's the white bear that comes to mind for me. He said, imagine a white bear and then get that image really firm in your mind and then shh, don't think about the white bear. Whatever you do, do not think about the white bear. And then... He kept, the, he kept the people around for 10, 15, 20 minutes, and they had to ring a bell every time they thought of the white bear. And the more they tried to not think about it, the more the bell was ringing. He found that attempts to suppress thoughts of white bears actually led to an increase in these thoughts after the suppression. You might be able to stamp it out for 10 minutes, but it's just going to come roaring back. And thought stopping doesn't work with worrying either. If it's something as benign as a white bear, what about you're worrying like your life depends on it? You've got to protect yourself from harm. You, you just simply can't stamp those out. Some of us are information collectors. That's how we deal with our worry. We're like, I'll just research it. That will calm my fears. <laughs> Let's say you get a headache. <laughs> it's probably nothing, but what if it's more than nothing? What if this is an indication of a deeper neurological disorder? I know. I'll research neurological disorders. <laughs> you get on WebMD. You start researching them, and all of a sudden, you're wondering, could this be a stroke? Could this be an aneurysm? Could this be a brain tumor? Okay, what percent of people get headaches? A hundred percent of people get headaches. But you're not on the hundred percent of people get headaches site. You're on the brain tumor site. And the more you study it, the, the, less, the less calm you feel and the more worried you, fear, you feel. It's not doing anything to ease your anxieties. Part of what happens, too, is we end up seeing trends that aren't there. And Nassim Tlaib's book, Fooled by Randomness, he's a statistician and an investor, and he, he studied small fluctuations in stock prices. But how day traders, they'll see a small fluctuation, and they'll be like, buy, 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 or sell, 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 and they'll... They'll think they're seeing these trends, but in reality, it's just randomness. And that's what we're, we're prone to do, especially if you're a worrier. You tend to read trends into randomness and project those out 
in such a way that you end up assuming the worst is going to happen. Or you're worried a certain person is annoyed with you. So you decide to collect more information. You watch them very closely and you notice, I think they are annoyed with me. Look at that look they just gave me. Look at that, look how, how tersely they responded to me. And you begin reading things into totally meaningless interactions. You're collecting information, but you're a biased collector because you're worried. And you're not just this impartial researcher. Leahy says, we now know that we almost always overestimate risk when we are anxious. You check over and over. Any of you checkers here? I'm a checker. You think, I may have forgotten something or failed to notice something. If I catch it early, I can prevent worse things from happening. And so I'm just going to check. I'm just going to double check. He gives one example of a client who was worried she was starting to look old. And so she got one of those super magnifying, like super bright mirrors and stuff. And she started checking for signs of aging which led to putting on more makeup, he said, which led to even more checking, which led to avoiding social settings, avoiding well-lit places, avoiding going out unless she really felt beautiful because she was worried she was getting old and she didn't want people to notice. And what he said was, the key to overcoming her worries was to stop checking and go to the party. Or another client, she was worried her boyfriend was going to dump her. And so she started wondering, why hasn't he texted me lately? Why hasn't he contacted me? It's been a couple hours. She began checking her voicemail and text messages constantly. Then she thought, maybe my voicemail's broken. So she called herself, left a voicemail, and then called and checked it to make sure that it was working properly. Finally, she couldn't stand the uncertainty of it all, and so she provoked her boyfriend into fights just to get the dumping over with. And so I guess it solved her anxiety problem, but then she lost out on the relationship. And so it's this, this desire for certainty is one of the things that, that research has found is at the heart of anxiety and is something that the, the anxious person simply is unable to deal with. Checking can never address your fundamental concern. I can't stand uncertainty. And the costs are that you're nervous and you spend a lot of time and energy checking and you reinforce your belief that you need to check to be safe when it's really not making you safe at all. What are the benefits? You feel better for an hour, but then you check again. One example he brought up was making sure the door was locked which I didn't realize other people had that problem besides me. But it's like, I, I go to bed at night, I'm like, did I lock the door? And I go downstairs and I check it and I go back upstairs and I'm like, I can't remember, I can't trust my memory. Did I lock the door? And so I've had to limit myself to one check per night, okay? I, I check it before I go up and I'm not allowed to go down and check the door. And you know, part of what I need to see is one morning I left the door unlocked and we did not get robbed. My wife actually, we had to put one of those electronic door locks on there because I kept locking her out of the house when she would leave the house. <laughs> she was getting really annoyed with it. <laughs> Understandably so. So. You avoid discomfort. That's one way we deal with anxiety. Let's say there's something that's going to make you feel uncomfortable, so you just procrastinate. You didn't do your taxes. And then, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And you're like, oh man, I didn't do my taxes. I should do my taxes. And then you just shut down. And then all of a sudden it's tax season next year. And you're like, well, I can't do my taxes this year because I didn't do my taxes last year. And so it, this anxiety just leaves you paralyzed and you just keep on pushing it off to the next year, going to the doctors the same way, working on homework. 
can be this way or just checking my email. I'm just worried that what I'm going to find, how I'm not going to be able to do it. There's going to be too much there. And so I just put it off. And it's a false way of dealing with anxiety. Reinforces the belief that you are incompetent to handle these problems. That's what the worrier thinks. And it makes you more worried about them in the future. You just feel so helpless. And related to his number six, you numb yourself with alcohol or drugs or food. It's a way of escape. It's a way of putting it off. It makes me feel better temporarily, but the problems come roaring back the next day. Over-preparing. Here's another way to deal with anxiety. They've done studies on public speakers that show that a lot of people, they feel so anxious about public speaking, they plan out every single word in their speech and they, even the inflections and they get so controlling with it and they get up there and they're just really boring. They're like a robot. And they've actually found that public speakers do way better with less preparation than they do with a lot more preparation. Me studying for exams in college. I remember in grad school, I would show up and I'm in grad school with all these brilliant people in computer science. And, um, you know, I'd show up and they'd be like, how much do you study for the exam? And I'd be like, four hours. And they'd be like, I studied 40. And I'm like, oh, man. (laughs) And then I would do better than this guy on the exam, even though he was clearly more brilliant than I am. And I think they just burned themselves out over preparing and were so freaked out by this test, they couldn't think clearly. Here's the, here's the fallacy here. It's never possible to be completely prepared. There's always unknowns, and it reinforces your belief you have to be perfect and know everything in order to feel safe, which you're not, and you can't. Uncertainty. You can't live with uncertainty or unknowns, and so the anxiety is just eating right through you. You ruminate, chewing it over and over. This image is what comes to mind here. <laughs> A cow ruminating, chewing its cud. Did you know cows have 17 stomachs? I made that up. Um, But I think they have a lot of stomachs. And that's why they chew so much. (laughs) Um, Worry is projecting something negative about the future. Ruminating is a review of what's happening now or what happened before. And you just keep turning it over and over and over and over in your mind, and reliving it. People who ruminate are far more likely to be depressed and anxious. Usually what rumination is a sign of is, I I keep chewing because there's some reality that I'm just not prepared to swallow. And uh, there's a feeling, most warriors are running from their feelings. They think they're the most in tune with reality, but they're actually out of tune with reality. There's actually, it's very emotional that's driving their seemingly logical processes. And that's what the ruminator is doing. You demand certainty. And I've mentioned this before, but he breaks it out as its own number 11 here because you think that achieving certainty now will make you feel less anxious. But searching for certainty actually makes you more worried. There is no certainty in an uncertain world. Yes, that is true. And that matches the biblical worldview as well, that we live in a broken world, a world where we are small, finite creatures and we don't and can't know the future. And we are simply powerless to do a lot about a lot of things. Accepting that. And finally, he says, you refuse to accept the fact that you have, quote, crazy thoughts. Research reports that almost everyone reports having crazy thoughts about things that are disgusting, illegal, or violent. 
thoughts that are always just in your own head. And I don't know if you guys can relate to this. I was asking, I was surveying people today, like my wife, and I said, do you ever have these? And she's, without hesitating, she said, I want to put a cat in the microwave. <laughs> All these years of marriage, and I never knew that about her. I'm married to some sicko. No, I'm just kidding. The point is, his point is we all have crazy thoughts. You're sitting there and you're just like, you're sitting there at dinner and you're like, man, what if I just jammed this knife into that person's eyeball? <laughs> Not that I've ever thought that, okay? Here's the thing. Many people believe that having certain thoughts means that they are immoral, disgusting, or uniquely messed up. These thoughts are presumed to reveal something central about your character or sanity. But here's the thing, guys. Character and sanity are not determined by your thoughts. They're determined by what you actually do. You don't act on these things. You never have acted on these things. Fighting to get rid of these thoughts rather than acknowledging that they're normal only increases your worry. So those are his dirty dozen that he's seen in his many years of research and therapy. So let's talk a little bit about overcoming anxiety. What does the literature say on this? Well, I can't hit you with all of it, but I figured I'd highlight a few. One that they, they use is called thought flooding in order to help you accept uncertainty. What is thought flooding? He says, accepting uncertainty is a core strategy in dealing with your worries. Practicing flooding yourself with uncertainty thoughts, repeating them endlessly without doing anything to gain certainty, helps you recognize that you can live with uncertainty. This is actually a technique that, that trained therapists will use when helping people with OCD. Uh, a friend of mine um, was just completely crippled, basically could not go to work anymore because of her extreme OCD. She was a nurse, and um, she had this fear that she, um, you know, like those, those needles you use for like shots and stuff, hypodermic needles, I guess, that she was just accidentally going to drop them places and people were going to step on them. So she would be walking out to her car after a long day at work and she would think, I think I may have dropped some needles. And so she would spend an hour walking to her car, walking back to the door, walking to her car, walking back to the door, trying to find the needles before she finally got in her car and drove away, but with tears because she just knew they were there. Uh, she would bake a lasagna. She was newly married for her and her husband and then she would think, I may have put some needles in here. And so she was terrified constantly and had to go into therapy for this. And what they did was they had her record her worst fears and then play them on repeat for half an hour while she listened to it. I dropped needles in the parking lot. I dropped needles in the parking lot. And part of what it does is it helps you realize the, the, the silliness of the thought that you're so uncertain about. It kind of almost gets you bored with the thought is what it does. Thought flooding, part of, you know, I've, I've done this in like non-clinical ways where I've just, I'm really worried about something and I'm like, okay, what am I worried about here? Like I remember when I would, I would get up to speak publicly, whether here or teaching in a, a, a work setting and I would be like, what if I completely bomb? What if I just totally flop? And I would be so worried and be like, no, I'm not gonna do that and I would over-prepare and then finally I was like, okay, 
What's the worst thing that's going to happen? Let's imagine I totally flop. Worst case scenario. Is that really that bad? I mean, you know, maybe it means I shouldn't try to teach anymore, and that wouldn't be the end of the world. Maybe it just means I'll try again. But are the people, are my friends going to stop caring about me? Is my family going to stop caring about me? Is God going to stop caring about me? And so it gave me this sort of invincible position where even if I totally failed, I was going to be okay. What's interesting is you see some of this in the Bible. Like Psalm 27, you see King David 3,000 years ago saying, what if evil people come to devour me? What if my enemies and foes attack me? What if a mighty army surrounds me? My heart will not be afraid. Even if I'm attacked, I'll remain confident. Even if my father and mother abandon me, Yahweh, God, will hold me close. So David's like, what can man do to me? God is in my corner. That's what he starts this psalm with. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Why should I be afraid? And so it gives us this, in this uncertain world, we start to see certainty. We start to see Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is a, a much deeper answer. Yes, it's accepting uncertainty, but it's also learning to trust in the character of God. You don't know exactly what God's going to do, but you know that he's good. And you know that he loves you if you have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Leahy says you need to accept your limitations. He says, we just need to accept some problems may not be solvable and we'll just have to live with them. Can you accept that? Because that's just reality. Here's one thing that's been helpful too. Not all worry is necessarily bad. Um, Like if you're standing in the middle of the highway and you're feeling, oh, what if a car hits me? Like, that's like kind of a legitimate concern. (laughs) And that should move you to action. Like getting out of the road. And so we we can ask, can this worry move me to legitimate action? Like, I'm worried I'm going to fail this class. Now, that can either cripple us and leave us unable to get out of bed in the morning. Or we can go to class. Like, that would be one action, a responsible action I could take that would increase my chances of passing that class. Maybe, you know, I remember when I was in school and mid, middle of the term and all the assignments would start to pile up and I would just start to feel totally overwhelmed. That was the point where I finally was pushed, to the, pushed over the edge where I needed to get all of my syllabuses out and make a schedule for when everything was due and when I was going to work on them. And I got a lot more productive when I got busy when I was in school. Worry is kind of a fight or flight, you know. It's almost like a rally to to battle sort of thing sometimes. Maybe getting organized. Maybe you need to reach out for help, tutoring. Um, Go talk to your professor. Talk to an advisor. Talk to a friend who can help. Maybe I need to evaluate my course. Maybe I'm taking classes I shouldn't be taking or too many at one time. But um, sometimes worry can move us to action. It can be a good thing. Get some exercise. Try to get out in nature. I'm a big believer in this as well. Exercise is a natural antidepressant, and it also is really good for relieving anxiety. Dr. Dr. Jean Twangy, in her book, iGen, she writes, Stephen Alardi, a clinical psychologist at the University of Kansas, gave a TED Talk titled, Depression is a Disease of Civilization. He and others have found that mimicking the lifestyle of our caveman ancestors... (laughs) It's one of the best ways to prevent and reduce anxiety and depression. What is the caveman lifestyle? 
Well, their six-part program includes sunlight exposure, outdoors, exercise, a diet high in omega-3 fatty acids, whatever those are, <laughs> avoiding rumination, getting enough sleep, and engaging in in-person social interaction. That's a real cure for a lot of these, these um, mental health problems. Social interaction can help. Most of these techniques are free or low cost, although they do take time. Where to get that time? Probably from that phone again, she says. If an activity involves a screen, it's linked to less happiness and more depression. She's got tons of charts on that in her book. If it doesn't, particularly if it involves in-person social interaction or exercise, it's linked to more happiness and less depression. Try an experiment on yourself for a week. Cut your phone, internet, and social media time in half. And use that time to see friends and family in person and or to exercise. More than likely, you'll end that week feeling happier. Wouldn't that be a good use for the next seven days? Get that Stay Focused app or something like it. Gratitude is another one that they cite in a lot of the research. There was a study a couple years back where participants over the age of 60, they kept a three good things diary for two weeks. And that just involves, before you go to bed at night, write down three good things in your life. Very simple, very short, pretty easy, right? What they found was a measurable decrease in stress the entire time they were doing the good things diary. And after they stopped, the stress kind of resumed to normal levels, but their increase in happiness was still present at the end of the study after day 45. Measurable increase in happiness. What an easy thing to do. We go to all these great lengths to feel better. Why not take that minute each day to express gratitude for three good things in your life? And we see this taught in the Bible as well. Gratitude, Philippians 4, in the context of anxiety. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So he's not saying thought stopping or even... Thought flooding, but thought replacement. Redirecting into thanksgiving. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a promise. The peace of God guarding your heart and your mind. Wouldn't you love that? Like a bodyguard standing at the door, just not letting anxiety in. Guarding your heart and your mind. And finally... Begin a relationship with God. This obviously is not in the scientific literature, but I just couldn't help as I read all this material anxiety and on how we can't have certainty in an uncertain world that what God gives us is he gives us not certainty of how everything will go, but a certainty of his character. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I just wanted to, I brought a testimony along here. This is actually a live testimony from the Monday Night CT but we videotaped it so we can watch it here. This is Ben Faust talking about how God has had an impact in his life in the area of anxiety. So uh, I do have a story about, about this topic, and it's a cool story because um, in my case, uh, looking back, I can see real clearly how God was at work through it. Um, I, sh I should start off by saying that um, I met Christ uh, in high school as a ninth grader. I got dragged out to a Bible study that I did not want to go to. I was totally cynical and had all the wrong uh, motivations. But in sitting under the Bible teachings, you know, week in and week out, 
I started to understand the message of the Bible, which I had never understood before. And at one of those meetings, during the prayer time, I prayed to receive Christ. And uh, that was in ninth grade. Pretty soon after that, the guy that was bringing me out to the meetings, he took off and quit coming around, and so I took off too. And I didn't have much to do with God all through high school. And that worked out basically okay. I had a pretty good high school experience. Uh, and by the end of high school, I felt like I was winning because I got into my first choice college that I wanted to go to, which was the College of Worcester. I auditioned for this scholarship, and I won it, which was basically a full ride. And so I was like, man, I got it made. Uh, once I got off to school, that's when things started to, I started to have problems um, almost right away. And I'm not sure, looking back, I, I don't know if it was uh, anxiety that was caused by there was homesickness was part of it, and uh, also part of it is that my family had broken up during high school, and so I had, I had just kind of replaced that with a group of friends, but now I had moved away from them. I'm, I'm not really sure, but I know that it was that whatever foundation I had was gone and, or, or was not adequate, and so things started to come crashing down. Uh, I remember at first just feeling weird, like I just felt... I felt, you know, anxious, I felt uncomfortable, I remember feeling like, um, I remember describing it to a friend like, man, I just feel like my, my emotions are out of control, I'm not really an emotional person, but it just feels like someone hooked up an amplifier to my feelings, everything I feel is way too strong, and it's uncomfortable, and I remember just thinking like, am I going crazy or what, and, and one day on the way to class, I was walking to class, and I was like, man, like, quit, you know, just like Conrad was saying, I tried the stop it method, where I was like, quit thinking crazy crap, you know, and so I like, I remember stop, stopping in my tracks and being like, I'm not going to class until I feel normal, and that didn't work, and, uh, which was scary, that scared me, like, I felt like I, I felt kind of out of control, and so I remember I sat down by a tree, I, I got upset, I started to cry, I did not go to class. And, um, and my heart was pounding. I didn't understand it at the time. Looking back, I understand that was an anxiety attack. And unfortunately, it was the first of what would, what would be many over the next couple months. And it was, it was pretty hellish. It was a terrible time. I, was, I stopped going to class altogether. I, didn't, I, I, I was too anxious to eat. You know, you're supposed to gain 15 pounds when you go to college, right? I lost like 20 pounds because I was just a, a wreck. And... Uh, I went to the, to the medical clinic there and got hooked up with a counselor, which was a total blow to my pride. And, um, uh, and I remember just showing up there every day, even when I didn't have an appointment. And I think she felt bad for me because she was like, look, I can't see you today. And, and at one point she said, would you like to just, I think she got the sense I just like to hang out in the waiting room. That's how desperate I was at this point. She was like, would you like to just hang out in the waiting room? I was like, yes. <laughs> and so that was what I did. I just went every day and sat around the waiting room, not even able to meet with anyone. It came to a head one night, uh, about this time of year, it was in the fall still, and I, uh, I got super upset. I, I went outside. I remember it was pouring down rain, and I went out behind my dorm in the grass field, and I just laid down in the rain, and I talked to God, which... Was the, I hadn't done that in a long time. And it wasn't pretty. You know, I called out to God basically to curse him. And basically, you know, I remember saying, like, 
how could you do this to me? You know, I, I'm supposed to be saved. You're supposed to take care of me and look at my life. And uh, you've, you've let this happen to me. And I remember the answer that I got back, not in a voice or anything weird, but the, the thought that came back, I believe, from the Holy Spirit was something like, dude, I didn't do this to you. You know, you haven't let me have a hand on the wheel in your life in years. You're driving. No, I haven't, I haven't done this to you. This is what happens when you're in control and push me out. And I was, I mean, it just rung through in that moment is true. And I remember calling out to God and saying, I need help. I don't know what it means. I don't know what to do or what you want me to do, but I acknowledge that I need you. Uh, and, I, and please help me. So, God answered that prayer. The next morning, which is a weird coincidence, the next morning I was supposed to go uh, travel out to New York City to visit a friend of mine who lived out there, and his dad was coming to pick me up at Worcester and drive up. So his dad comes and picks me up, and he's got all these other guys in the car with him who I didn't really know. Turns out he was a Bible study leader, and these were guys from his Zenos High School or College Bible study, and so I sat shotgun that night, driving out to New York, talking to this guy that I remotely knew from high school named Ryan Lowry. And, you know, we're sitting there, and he's like, man, I haven't seen you in years. Like, I remember him being like, how are you, have you been? And I just started crying. You know, it was so awkward. I was like, oh, my life's terrible. And I'll never, I mean, he looked over at me like, oh, my God. Well, who am I stuck talking to? Um, but I told him everything. I told him that I had called out to God. I told him that I was like, I need, I need, I know that the problem here is I need God. And uh, he just said, well, dude, I mean, it sounds like you know what you need to do. A couple weeks later, I got dismissed from Worcester. They gave me a medical leave of absence, which was kind because it mean I didn't fail, but I did lose my scholarship. And uh, I came home completely humiliated, completely defeated, uh, more anxious than ever, uh, more depressed than ever. And so I called up that, that dad, my friend's dad, and I was like, let me come check out this Bible study. And they were meeting down at 16th at the time, and I remember coming down there and almost right away feeling like, yeah, this is what I need. I need to hear the word taught. And I, I, I wanted to... I didn't want to be alone. I didn't want to be at home. And so I came to that meeting, and then I was like, what other meetings do you have? And I found, I overheard that they had a prayer meeting, like a couple days later, that I wasn't even invited to, but I showed up anyway. Showed up uninvited to prayer, which weirded everybody out. And I remember that they were, they were hiding their prayer list from me. And I was like, what, you know? And so I looked at it, and the reason is because it had my name on it. And that was because my mom was so worried about me that she had called up my friend's dad and been like, do you still go to a church? Will you guys pray for my son? And what I, re I remember that, you know, that these, these people had been praying for me all that time. All these, these people I didn't even know were praying for me. And, uh, and, and they, were, they thought it was awkward, but I didn't. I just got the tingles because I was like, <laughs> dude, these people don't even know that God already answered their prayer, you know. And uh, when that happened, I was like, that was a turning point in my life. I was like, I'm all in. This is what I need to do. And that was the best decision I've ever made. That time was super hard. I wouldn't relive it. I, I wouldn't want to relive it. But I also wouldn't trade it because 
uh, God pursued me through that, and, uh, and pretty much all the good things in my life. You know, it was 22 years ago. I can trace almost everything good in my life back to that night, uh, calling out to him. So God does work even in the darkness. So. Awesome. <clears throat> what a great story. Relationship with God. As, as the scriptures say, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And you know, this is not just some abstract thing or this like turning point in your life kind of thing. This is the kind of thing that you can do on a daily basis. Um, I got to experience this in a pretty personal way just about eight or nine hours ago. Um, I was kind of ahead of schedule on my teaching and I was thinking, man, I, I'm not usually this far ahead at this point in the game. And I wonder why. And uh, then my dad calls me up this morning at about 10 a.m. And he said, um, I need to tell you about something that happened with your mom last night. My parents, they're in their late 60s. They retired last year. They moved to Columbus. They're Christians. They're following God. They love their home church. They're, they're awesome. And uh, dad was like, you know, my mom had had a couple of seizures maybe seven years ago, but nothing ever at any point in her life. And um, he's like, we went to bed last night and... I woke up and she was having a seizure and I couldn't wake her up. And he called the squad and she didn't want to go because she woke up by then and so she went back to bed and then he went back to sleep and he woke up and she was having another seizure. And so he called the squad again and she was, um, it was kind of hard to get her woken up and loaded into the ambulance and um, they took her to the hospital and he said, she's there right now and I'm heading down, back down there in a little bit. And, um, you know, we talked about it some. She, um, she had been on seizure medication and she had gone off her medication. Um, so that was, I felt like a pretty good explanation for it. But still, that is a, that is a scary thing. You know, when your mom's in her late 60s and she, she's having a seizure and dad can't wake her up. And they have to call the ambulance twice in one night. Um, and so we got done with our conversation. I said, well, Dad, do you want to pray? And he said, yeah. And so we did this right here. We cast our anxieties on God because he cares for us. And I was able to thank God that nothing worse happened. Thank God that he knew this was all going to happen, that he knows the future. He knows what's wrong here. I was able to thank him that we have good medical care, the kind of doctors that can deal with something like this. I was, I was thanking God personally that they're not living an hour and a half away anymore, but they're living 15 minutes away. Um, and then my dad prayed, and he's, he said a couple different things, but he said, Father, I just want to remember that she, she is your daughter. She's in your hands. And you know her future, and... Um, we both were able to thank the Lord that we know that no matter what happens, we know that we're all going to heaven. And that one day we'll, we'll live in a world without this sort of thing. And my, my dad, he, for the second time in my entire life, he cried with me on the phone. And um, I thought it was so cool that we didn't know this was going to happen and we don't know what's going to happen. Unfortunately, she's home and she's doing great now. So, But what we did know is we know God. And we knew there's some temporary uncertainty, but there's eternal certainty. 
when it comes to the God of the universe. And so in conclusion, you're not alone in your struggle against anxiety. A lot more people have a problem with this than you think. And you're not powerless either. This is not completely out of your control. Some things are, but there's a lot of things that aren't. And I hope that you found something tonight that might be helpful in your struggle with your anxiety. But I would say why not reach out and talk to somebody. Um, talking to somebody else is one of the great things you can do to share your problems, to share the burden. But ultimately, why not reach out to God like Ben was talking about there and ask him to show you what true certainty is in the midst of our uncertain world. Yes, Lord, um, you offer peace. You're the God of peace. And you offer a peace that will guard our hearts and our minds, Lord. That, that is supernatural, Lord. And there's some of us here that have been longing for that for years now, Lord, and are maybe seeing for the first time tonight that that's possible. God, I pray, that, I pray for those people, God. I pray that they would not just go back to the way things were before, but that they would seek out you, seek out that fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace. Um, I pray too, God, um, I, I, I just thank you that you, we can cast our anxieties on you and, and you're not surprised by anything that's happening and that you can give us um, as much certainty as we can possibly get in this life and you promise another, another world that works properly and um, where we'll be with you forever. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.